delighted now to introduce our second panel moderator, Mr. Joe Matthews. Joe Matthews is the author of The People's Machine, Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Rise of Blockbuster Democracy, and is the co-author of California Crack Up. He is Sokolo's California editor and writes our weekly Connecting California column, which appears in 24 newspapers around the state. He's also co-president of the Global Forum on Modern Direct Democracy and a professor of practice at Arizona State University. Joe has spent the last 18 months as the official storyteller of a process in the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta called the Delta Dialogues. Please give a very warm welcome to my colleague, Mr. Joe Matthews. Thank you for, uh, for being here. Uh, thanks to, uh, to my colleagues from Zocalo, to the folks at Oxy. When the well is dry, we learn the worth of water. Um, that's uh, Poor Richard's Almanac, Benjamin Franklin. Um, and we're kind of there. Um, you know, this, the 70 of the world's major river systems are considered effectively drained, groundwater tables plunging, glaciers shrinking. Um, and really, the, what we're going to talk about with this, uh, with this panel shortly is, is uh, how uh, this is changing the, the value, the cost, the price of water, and, um, and how it should change uh, the value, cost, and price of water. And, um, you know, by the way, um, um, the very next line in uh, Poor Richard's Almanac after that one is, when the wine enters, out goes the truth. So it's uh, very fortunate for us that we are before the refreshments here um, with this particular panel. Um, you're also probably asking, um, why the basketball? Why am I holding a basketball? Yes. Um, and, um, and there's an answer for that. Now, I, I, I am... Uh, I, I have to tell you, there may be some math in this panel when we talk about costs and prices, and I, um, I find it hard sometimes to um, just hear numbers or hear, or hear statistics and understand what they mean. So um, there are two ways of sort of measuring water you may hear people talk about. Um, one is when you measure flow, the flow of water. What's the, the, the measure is in cubic feet per second, all right? A basketball is about a cubic foot. That's the same sort of volume. So imagine when they're talking about feet, it's one of these. You know, that's the, that's the measurement. That's our office Miami Heat fan there. So she can handle the basketball. And um, I know, I know, it's, it's, it's hard. And, and then um, for the other measurement, we talk about when water's sort of sitting in a place. Um, I think the best way to conceive of this is to think of the most powerful couple in America, America's really first family, um, and that's uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce. And um, now, um, they have built a home for themselves in the Hamptons on Long Island, New York. Reports differ on its size, but, but a, a number of the reports have said that it is over 40,000 square feet, this house, um, that they have. And um, that's about an acre, essentially. So uh, when you hear someone talk about an acre foot, Imagine that their, that, that their house has been flooded, about one foot of water everywhere in the four, floor plan. You've probably seen the house, it's been on TV, you know, TMZ's chased them around it. So anyway, that's what you're talking about when, when you say acre foot. It's also about, say, flooding at one foot about three quarters of a football field, if that helps you um, there. And I think um, with that, um, this can't be a solo show. So. Uh, I'll um, introduce each of the uh, speakers as I uh, get them into the conversation. But um, 
to getting started here, um, immediately to my left, uh, is Stephen Solomon, who's written for all kinds of publications, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Economist, regular commentator on NPR's Marketplace. Um, he's the author of this very terrific book. Um, in fact, this panel is distinguished for the fact that it has uh, a number of writers and people, people who are, um, have been able to um, make this very complicated topic not only easy to understand, but actually sort of fun to read about. Um, and uh, it's called Water, the Epic Struggle for Wealth, Power, and Civilization. Um, he's also currently working on a, a new book, uh, The Mississippi River and the Making of America. Um, so, and we're, we're talking about cost and price, and you know, this is a very old problem. You quote, and people like to start with Adam Smith and the sort of the, the water diamond problem. Water is indispensable, but it's really cheap. Diamonds are pretty much useless. Um, and yet very expensive. Um, but now we have this sort of different moment here, right? We have this, this question of scarcity um, and, and what you refer to um, as a colossal underpricing of water's full economic and environmental worth. You know, in one sense, it costs too little. But then, you know, you read about water and you say, well, it costs too much for a lot of people. You got one-fifth of humanity can't even secure access to the one gallon of water fit for drinking daily. 40% lead, you know, lack the, the sort of five gallons that are, you know, necessary for adequate sanitation. So, so I guess the big question is, you know, how do you, how do you raise prices on the right people, for, for the right people, um, while, you know, making it less costly for, for people who don't have enough? Right. Well, well, first let's say, uh, I, I'd say there's not one single price for water, sure. you know, in the world, and every water problem is a, a very local problem and, yeah. and has to be dealt with in those terms. Um, so so that, that's the first caveat. Uh, the, the second one, just to take Adam Smith for a minute, just to put that in a framework, uh, the, sort of the classical economists that came after him figured out or, or determined that the price of water is actually multiple um, and that it, 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 it falls to its uh, lowest uh, uh, utility of value in any given situation, any local one. So, for example, in a rich society like ours, uh, we, we, uh, price is pretty cheap because we use it for, for filling swimming pools and, lawn, and, and, and uh, our lawns uh, get a lot of water and stuff like that. Uh, where you move to arid environments, obviously the price becomes quite priceless uh, and, and valuable. So uh, that price is, uh, is, is, is the first thing. That, that always uh, is, is a range of prices. <clears throat> um, the second thing well, I would also say is that there are sectors that was alluded to in the last panel that really, you have to look at this by sector because the food sector, for example, has very cheap price for water today. It's really colossally underpriced because of the old 19th century uh, water rights in many parts of the industrialized world or drilling freely for, for groundwater around the world. Um, and, over, and therefore over, overusing it or, or not using it. Uh, but food is quite important um, and, and, is, and, and should be uh, allocated, in my mind, for a... We need sector allocations. Um, there's another, uh, obviously, for drinking water is priceless uh, for, for, for poor people um, or for, for any of us. Uh, that first five, at least the first five gallons, you know, is, it should be probably made as, as low a price. It's not very much water at all when you look at the big scheme of things. And you can do something like tiered pricing. I mean, that's being used around the world. And that's reverse of, of, of market economics in some ways. It says that first few gallons is very low priced, and the and the larger the price, uh, the larger the users, the the higher the price uh, goes up. I mean that makes some sense uh, to begin to introduce some 
form of, of market-based allocation to it. Uh, that said, I still think you have to do this on a sector-by-sector -sector, uh, basis. Uh, I mean, agriculture would be priced out of existence if we did it uh, in, in that, uh, applied that across the board as well. But within the agriculture sector, you want to engender a, a reallocation towards the uh, more efficient users. I don't know if that well, starts so, the question. So if we, if we do make these changes, you, you, your book, unlike so much of what I read about water, has at least sort of big hopeful moments, particularly at the end. You say that you know, this age of water scarcity, scarcity quote, consequently heralds the potential start of a momentous transition in the trajectory of water and world history. Hmm. Okay. I said that, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what is the nature of this transformation? And, and you know, you get in the book and saying, you know, it's not clear whether it's going to be a, a big enough transformation. It may just be a way we muddle through or it's really going to shake us up and we're going to be in a new age. Well, well the, the, the general thesis of the book, and it went through the various ages of various societies, whether it was ancient uh, China or the, you know, the, agri the Industrial Revolution when we figured out about how to use uh, of water to get steam power, and it, is that the, when there are great breakthroughs in our usage of water, uh, we get those societies often do extremely well themselves, but we also get great transformations in civilization over time. Uh, we are sort of at an age now where we are entering an age where water is becoming, for the first time, really truly um, uh, scarce uh, and, and, uh, and the price is uh, going to be going up and there's going to be competition among, uh, for it among many of the, uh, the, uh, the uses. For the first time in history, we've had four uses of water in world history. Uh, that's for sort of our economy, uh, for, for, for drinking and domestic uses, for, for power, and for transport. Well, now we have a fifth use that we never had before, and that is for environmental flows just to keep the ecosystems uh, healthy, because as you alluded to in the beginning, uh, we're talking about pump, over-pumping the groundwater systems, we're talking about the rivers not reaching anymore. So you've got to have a, you've got to somebody, we've got to build into this structure of prices and, and, and environment, uh, an environmental cost, as they did in Australia, as that was alluded to before, as the basis for which they then allocated beyond that. Um, so the hopefulness in this is, is only that if, if and when, because I think the paradigm actually exists conceptually uh, of what we start to, uh, how we start to uh, have to approach a lot of the water problems. A lot of the technologies actually exist. Uh, the reuse, uh, are, are, and they're fairly banal. Um, but the governing mechanisms of how to get this uh, transformation to take place, that's the big missing piece. And that's the hardest one by far. Uh, just take one sort of Imagine uh, sort of a, an example that would be uh, from 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 your from your mind. I went, was in um, Kenya uh, laying some water pipes uh, for a waterless village. People were walking the the, the the two kilometers each day, spending half their time doing that, and it was you know obviously a great burden. Water's very heavy, and all the rest of those uh, the issues. The, the point was this, when the, when the water pipes turned on, this was a very simple thing, it cost $5,000, we were able to get these water pipes put in place, they had the pumps already there, they'd been there for 30 years, uh, and, and people were walking to these wells. So why in 30 years had nothing happened, where it only costs, you know, $5,000, right? It was nothing. Um, well, the, the answer, this is happening all over the world, for these billion people who don't have access to, to water, or the, the two and a half billion without the sanitation. There is a, there is a absence, a co total collapse of basic governance. Because if I were a, if I were a dictator of, a, of even the worst country in the world, I'd at least like to be able to go on pilfering the population as much as I could. I'd like to at least put in some basic water infrastructure for them, so that they would be at least content, you know, uh, while, while I'm doing that. 
but it's not happening. And so I, I believe that the fundamental problem at, at a very basic level outside is that there is the lack of governance. We see it in our country in a much more complex uh, system where we're um, unable to make some of the basic changes that we know would be, be very, uh, very beneficial. Okay. Interesting. I want to um, bring um, uh, Jason Peltier into the conversation. Um, um, uh, you know, he's the, the deputy general manager, chief deputy general manager, right, of um, Westlands Water District, which is a, a 600,000-acre uh, district, the west side of the San Joaquin Valley. If you're driving up the five, you get up to Kings and Fresno counties, that, looking around, that's, those are uh, Jason's farmers there. Um, uh, is it the largest irrigation district in the United States? It's, it's yes, a, <laughs> I said <laughs> um, Imperial was, might be bigger in, in overall size. Got it. Um, that's in the Imperial Valley, also in California. He was raised on a diversified farm in Kern County, uh, began his work in water management in 1966 as an irrigator's assistant. What, what, what do you do when you're I just irrig- made that name up. It was just, <laughs> here's a shovel, go start digging. <laughs> Um, he previously served as the principal deputy assistant secretary for water and science at the uh, U.S. Department of Interior that made him responsible for helping manage the Bureau of Reclamation and the U.S. Geological Survey, and he was a manager, he was manager of the Central Valley uh, Project Water Association. Um, you know, um, uh, before we pile on agriculture, which I'm sure Bring will, be part, of, will uh, be part I, of it. I enjoy um, that. <laughs> you know, some, the story is sort of... Is is different now, isn't it, than the sort of the the typical story you hear in water textbooks? I mean, you and Westlands have seen a lot of change. Your deliveries have seen these big dramatic swings, reductions. You've taken a hundred thousand acres of farmland out of irrigated agriculture. Um, you're paying higher prices, and and I guess my question to you is is, you know, certainly growers and farmers there are making changes. You know, are they? You know, are they making them fast enough? And, and how can you make change if you're trying to, to grow things or provide water to things when there's just so much uncertainty in this, both about price, climate, even the science that sort of undergirds decisions? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, our, our district, not unlike um, uh, about 29 other ag districts on the west side of the San Joaquin Valley and going on down in Kern County, uh, we've all faced over the last 20 years significant water supply disruptions and shortages, uh, uh, 40, 60, 90% cutbacks in supply over the last 20 years. Uh, only three years have we had a full supply. Uh, and that is a, a function of uh, a number of environmental laws and how they are implemented primarily. There's some drought in there. But it's uh, the Endangered Species Act and the Central Valley Project Improvement Act that have reallocated water and changed priorities and, and, and so forth. Uh, and you, you really give me a softball because it's, you know, it is a great story from my perspective about what our farmers have done to cope. And, and it was not easy. It was very expensive. Uh, and it's still going on. We're now kind of out of, out of uh, tools to use uh, in a lot of ways. But... Um, the the you know the crop shifts the the yes water is much more expensive than it ever was before to this year uh, historically maybe if it costs 25 bucks an acre foot this year 150 is the cheapest if you're in the market you're 400 uh, I've heard 800 an acre foot water being purchased by our farmers this summer 
so the, the pricing is different, the reliability is different, uh, and, and they've done a fantastic job of coping. Uh, our primary coping mechanism is leaving land out of production, and we do that a lot. Um, this year, probably 125,000 acres. Uh, we're not farmed, so we could focus the water on the, on the permanent crops. Um, but I, I, if I could, Joe, yeah. I'd like to go back to the, the two, two things that started this, uh, that I saw coming in here was, one was, you know, can we survive the water wars? That's the title. I, I disagree with that notion. You know, I don't think, we, we are definitely in the water world, even in water, ag, urban, and enviros that are involved with the water world, we're 80% in sync. So there's no massive conflict there are some significant conflicts in areas and different perspectives, but I don't see us at, in, at war. Um, in fact, there's a lot of common desire to see the system improve and the ecosystems improve, and we spend a lot of time working on that. But you're in court all the time, and, and Mr. Culp, sitting to your right, is, is doing very well for himself <laughs> as an attorney in this. In this. Yes. If you... Uh, it's almost amusing, and I don't know whether to laugh or cry about it, but sometimes we have meetings and above boards, and there'll be one agenda item, two agenda item, and then three is closed session, and the list of litigation goes <laughs> on back around to the, the back of the page. But we're not, uh, you know, we don't, we, we, we don't we apologize for that. I mean, the, we, need, we need that third branch of government to to intervene sometimes because we find the decisions and the policies of government are often uh, uh, narrow-minded and, and poorly uh, based in science and, uh, and we need to be able to check them. And when we have, you know, we win some, we lose some, but the two major biological opinions controlling the CVP, the Central Valley Project and the State Water Project were thrown out as arbitrary, capricious and unlawful. Mm -hmm. uh, and the judge said, go back and rework them, fish agencies. That's what they're doing now when we're working together with them to try and figure out what's the right thing to do for fish. But um, it hasn't made our life any better, necessarily. But let me, just to, to follow up on that, but is, you know, you, you said, one of the things you said is we, we're running out of tools, but, you know, that, that probably, you know, makes some heart sink in the room because, you know, people say, wow, you know, it's agriculture. It, you know, it uses so much water. It's... It's not as efficient as it should be. You know, they'd still maybe pay too little for it, some would argue. And, and all for, you know, for, for not the largest economic impact, right? I mean, you know, the Apple, the company uh, in Cupertino is bigger than the entire agricultural product of California. Um, so, so what's the case for, for ag and, 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 and why aren't there more tools? Um. Well, all the criticisms that you've voiced are appropriate and right and can be leveled in various places at various times. Uh, uh, in our, our circumstance, 20 years of water supply shortage has meant a massive investment in water use efficiency. 80% of our district is now on drip or micro uh, sprinkler. Um, and, and, and while ag does use a lot of water, uh, it, it kind of you could, you could also consider that farmers are just transforming that water into a product. Uh, it's, it's the consumer that is consuming the product, the water. Uh, it does take about, I've heard, like 60 gallons of water to produce a glass of milk. 
No, when you, by the time you think of growing the feed and the conversion of the feed and da da da, so it there is a lot of water use. And while maybe I I I do another metric. I say uh, forty percent of the water is uh, about is used in agriculture. About fifty percent is uh, dedicated to the environment or use is that's where it ends up. And ten percent is used by urban. So I have a little different metric, but but it's still the same. Bottom line is. No matter how much ag uses, 100% of the people have got to eat. And if you followed, if you wanted this country to follow the dietary guidelines out of USDA, while we're the number one producer of, of fruit and vegetables and, uh, in, in the country, it would take two more Californias to, to meet the dietary needs of, of the people. So according to the, what the government says we need. So uh, there's, there's plenty of demand, there's plenty of need, and, um, um, and it's... I'll stop. Oh, thank you. No, thank you. This is, this is great. I want to bring in Emily Green um, at this point. Um, uh, she likes uh, Steve is someone who's really great at making these complicated things really visceral and, and, and interesting. Um, she's been writing about science and the environment for publications like the, the Guardian, Independent, New York Times, LA Times, High Country News since the 1980s. She's had recent pieces at, uh, looking at LA's uh, failing flood control system, which is tough piece to read, but I recommend it, uh, and the collapse of dust control agreements in the Owens Valley. She has a terrific site, uh, chanceofrain.com. Uh, um, you're the local on this, uh, on this panel, and I want to ask you about, um, maybe to try to illustrate costs and how costs you know, aren't just of a moment, you know, the water goes through us, but costs can last a long time. But the LA Aqueduct, I mean, there's a, almost an orgy of remembrances around the, <laughs> the 100th anniversary. And, and I'm, you know, I'm curious about the, what the costs of the aqueduct are today. Um, do we, are we still paying them? Who is paying them? You know, how does that sort of illustrate, the, you, know, what, you know, how does it go from an aqueduct built 100 years ago to our water bills today? Right, thank you. Um, Yes, we're paying them, but we're bleating about it, and we've called in the lawyers. Um, uh, basically, uh, just as on November 5th, there'll be lots of people taking bows about the LA Aqueduct and the here it is, take it um, lifeline that allowed LA to turn into a city. That's Mulholland, what he said when he opened it. Yeah. LA will be appearing in court um, to have penalties decided on its unilateral decision to renege on Owens Valley dust control measures. Um, it decided to do this several years ago when, after a revolving door succession of general managers at LADWP, um, uh, a man with Ron Nichols, the latest general manager, arrived. And he looked at the LA having hit the billion dollar mark in paying for dust suppression in uh, Owens Dry Lake, um, which was dried out many, many years ago. And after years of denying that it was the source of the worst uh, particulate matter pollution in the US ever recorded by the US EPA outside of forest fires, um, it finally agreed to begin a programmatic series of uh, dust control measures. And it had to leave a certain amount of fresh water um, back on the old Owens lake bed, or it had to put gravel down, or it had to do uh, plant it with um, 
salt grass or something. Those were the three options it had. Uh, and it decided, because it had water, and leaving water was the cheapest, that it would leave water. And it's now leaving roughly 90,000 acre feet of water a year, which is, you know, getting back to the base, or sorry, basketball, um, which is a lot of water. It's, 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 um, it's, it's between a third and a half of our entire draw from the Eastern Sierra. And as the inability, as the uh, allocation that we could get out of the Sacramento Delta started to shrink because of the need to, say, leave enough water for fish, which is something farmers might think about doing. Um, and as the Colorado went into prolonged drought, um, the new head of LADWP just looked at his options and thought, it's going to be cheaper to sue them and stop with dust control than it is to actually leave the water up there. And that is the decision LA has done. And um, so it's also <laughs> in this extraordinary standoff announced that a master plan to leave water there in artful ways, to maybe leave shallow flooding for migrating birds and to work with Audubon on an artful restoration. It's decided it will only do that if it can um, take control of the entire show, if it can be guaranteed that it only has to remediate within a certain circumference that it's decided it will take responsibility for having dried out. So in a sense, on the 100th anniversary of the opening of the LA Aqueduct, relations are at a you know, pretty healthy low. Um, <laughs> and I don't think you'll see many people in Inyo County going, wow. <laughs> um, and I think in LA, um, the, you know, there's so much that guilt will do but then there, we have to look at it and say, this isn't, you know, millions of miles away. And do we really want um, arsenic-laced dust billowing out of the eastern Sierra, you know? And do we really want um, to be the bad guy in this? What can we do? Well, the big complaint um, of the LADWP is that 15% of the average rate payers bill goes to dust suppression. And they argue that this is onerous and this is why we shouldn't be doing it. I look at it and I think, well, 15% of the bill to clean up the environmental damage you're doing is not actually that high. We're, we're doing that damage and we've been doing it for a century. And how much should it cost? Now, this is the golden question. We really don't know how much it should cost. But there's a law of physics. If you take water from one place and we take water from three, the places you take it from are going to miss it. And you're going to have to work with those places to somehow mitigate the damage. And unless you're sober about what those costs are going to be, you should think twice before you take the water because this is an on-cost. And whether or not it's an on-cost that hits you on your utility bill, or it's an on-cost that hits you in forest fire suppression or whatever, uh, it's an on-cost. And here we get to 
the crazy, crazy setup and control of our water companies, uh, where our, our LADWP, for instance, is run by LA City Council and the mayor. Now, let's say our newly elected mayor goes and says, I've got an idea for the 100th anniversary of the aqueduct. Let's raise everyone's water bills. You know, <laughs> I don't think that that's going to make him, his first 100 days, look really, you know, that's going to do anything for his polls. And the last time that um, there was a really flagrant bid to raise water rates, or actually this was power rates, um, under David Freeman, um, when Villaraigosa was mayor, he was fired, and he was fired in no uncertain terms, in very short order. And we have this setup where our local, you know, city council members go there with the idea that their job is to keep our water rates low. I think their job is to make sure our water rates are well spent that we are progressive, that we are doing a, you know, coordinated suite of efforts to conserve, to mitigate where we draw from, and to think rationally about town planning and, yes, controlled growth. And unless we start looking at all of these things together, and unless we as a city start combining departments like sanitation, public works, and water, and managing them as one entity to reflect the water cycle, we're going to, be, we're going to remain highly dysfunctional. Um, I want to uh, 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 bring you into this part of the conversation, but I we haven't heard from Peter yet. Um, Peter Culp is an uh, attorney partner in the Phoenix office of Squire Sanders. Uh, and practices in the areas of water and natural resources, environmental, social, federal Indian law. His clients include private, public, nonprofit entities. He served on the Colorado River Advisory Commission since 2004, uh, working to develop and implement new binational strategies for the management of water supplies, in addition to participating in a number of other water and public lands policy and planning efforts. Um, uh, Emily's written a lot about this, um, and you know a lot about the Colorado River. Um, um, we've just heard the, you know, what's happening from, you know, a little bit from the Delta, a little bit from uh, the Owens Valley. Um, what about the, what, what, what is the, what, give us a picture of the Colorado um, uh, picture. You know, what is that Colorado River picture and, um, and its scarcity? And, and what are we not doing there that we should be doing? Sure. Um, yeah, well, I mean, sort of like the Delta and I think like a lot of other places, the Colorado River isn't a very pretty picture um, at the moment. Um, and it's, I, I think in a lot of ways, you can, the Colorado River is a great sort of microcosm for water issues sort of worldwide. It's a place where, uh, it's a river that we actually have more control over than almost any other natural resource uh, that you can really imagine. We use every single drop of the Colorado River. Uh, we regulate it, we use it, reuse it. Uh, each drop is used three, four, sometimes five times. And the river itself doesn't even reach the ocean. We use 90% of it inside the United States. Um, we then deliver about 10% to Mexico. And if you go down to Yuma, Arizona, there's a dam called Moreos Dam where Mexico takes its water and the what's left of the river, which by that point is by eastern standards, probably a large creek, takes a right turn into that into an irrigation canal and disappears. Um, the river, I think, uh, um, 
in some ways, I think, is a great uh, sort of indicator of the fact that we've transitioned from a sort of era of surplus to an era of scarcity. And uh, when I started working on this stuff in around sort of 1997, 1998, uh, all we talked about was surpluses and how we were going to divide up all this extra water we had. Um, today, we don't talk about that at all. Um, we're talking primarily about shortage. Um, and I think the transition that that um, sort of represents is really going to change the way in which we think about water, um, both in the Colorado River, but hopefully other places as well, particularly the places affected by it. Um, we just finished um, something called the Colorado River Basin Study, which is the sort of first and I think most comprehensive um, study of a river basin anywhere in the world where we've attempted to actually rationalize supply and demand over a 50-year uh, period of time. And what that study actually shows is that we are uh, going to be short around 20% uh, and maybe even more, uh, depending on uh, climate change, um, from what we use and demand of the resource to what it can actually deliver. Um, and that's uh, an important piece of information for us, I think, as, as water users. Uh, has major implications for California, which uses almost 30% of the river's uh, total supplies used here in this, in this state. Um, so, is it, is it, so, in dealing with that, you know, I've, you, you write uh, great pieces that appear in places like the Wall Street Journal and the Arizona Republic with uh, your old law school professor, you know, Robert Glennon at the University of Arizona. Um, that, um, you know, where there's a theme there it's in some of your work and commentary that, you know, I would describe it as, in an L.A. way, that we're not cinematic enough in our water planning, that we, um, we're still planning for the average, mm -hmm. um, as you put it, um, and not for the, you know, not realizing that, that there's this great fragility and not planning for the, the collapse, the disaster. Is that... Is that basically it? And, and, and if so, what does that mean? And what, what, do, what do you do on the Colorado if you, if you think sort of differently and plan differently? Yeah, well, I, what's been interesting to watch, I guess, about the, the water conversation on the Colorado River is that it has focused primarily on this idea that we're going to run out. Uh, there isn't enough. We need to go build pipelines. We need to uh, pull in new supplies from other places. We need to go raid Westland's water district. Uh, and dry the farmers out. Get in line. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long line. Um, but in a lot of ways, and actually the basin study that I was referring to earlier, uh, if, you, if you read it carefully, um, and this is true not just in the Colorado River Basin, but a lot of other places, what it really says is, um, is not so much that we're going to run out of water. It's uh, exactly what you alluded to. It's that the system is fragile. And it has become fragile in a way um, that the, because we've planned around the average, because we've essentially designed these systems that we use to manage water primarily to kind of smooth out natu natural variations. And we've focused primarily then on, after having smoothed those variations out, um, trying to uh, match up supply and demand. We're going to develop new supply. We're going to try and conserve more. Um, what I think we're beginning to experience, in the, at least in the Colorado River system, and I think elsewhere as well, is that the real challenge we face is that the average that we planned all of our systems to is no longer there. Uh, we can no longer rely on it. 
And as a result, we're beginning to face some real vulnerabilities in the future that we can't avoid. Um, the Bureau of Reclamation, which, uh, which uh, funded the study along with uh, the Colorado River Basin states, uh, uh, actually you know, comes to that conclusion very uh, clearly, which is that having, they investigated about 160 different solutions that could potentially be employed, everything from um, conservation and uh, investments in agriculture to kind of crazy stuff like towing icebergs. Um, or Missouri River pipelines, which Pat Mulroy doesn't think. Aren't they going to bring the Mississippi uh, over, Steve, all the way to <laughs> Colorado? The isn't somebody, there a real? Isn't the Army Corps of Engineers of, really doing that? Over a lot at? of dead bodies. Yeah. 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 <laughs> We've investigated for for two trillion dollars. That project can be yours. Yeah, wow. um, but the uh, <clears throat> but what the study really says fundamentally is that having spent and they, you know they investigate this whole portfolio and they say okay if we if we implement all this stuff and we spend about 4 or 5 billion dollars a year um, implementing tons and tons of different solutions we still can't eliminate the vulnerability in the system in fact the users are going to have to adapt to very high levels of uncertainty something like a 60% probability of shortages for the state of Arizona on an annual basis not in you know, 10 decades from now, but in two to three decades from now, or even, or even sooner. Um, and that really means um, some, some sort of major adjustments in the way in which you think about that system, because it's, it's really figuring out how to deal with fragility that becomes the biggest challenge. And it's one that we still don't think about, I think, publicly, even in the water management side, I don't think we think about enough yet. Emily, what does that mean for, um a place you know a lot about. Um, you know, we talk about LA running out of water, but Vegas is going to go down before us, way Ve before, right? Vegas is, um, you know, <laughs> they are gamblers. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really interesting because Las Vegas gambled that um, in the era of surplus on the river, that if they just held the groundwater of the Great Basin captive and they threatened to pump it, that they would get lots of concessions of more water from the river and they could let the, put the hostage down the Great Basin, everything would be fine. Then the river dried up and they're now pursuing this mad plan to pump uh, roughly 200,000 acre feet of groundwater, Jay is probably cursing somewhere in the background, mm -hmm. uh, from five basins um, in the driest state in the country, the number one driest state in the country, that, and also from border valleys in the number two driest state in the country, being Utah. And they have this idea that, that it will cost $16 billion, right? It, it started at three, it's now at 16, they haven't taken a drop. And they're not counting mitigation. Now, w we've heard that you know, mitigation for Owens Valley alone has been a billion dollars, and that was uh, slow to come and kind of as these environmental regs clicked in and happened. A lot of the air pollution standards and Endangered Species Act standards exist now. So Vegas is safely going to be paying, even though they've written a, a highly sly mitigation deal for it, they're going to be paying an absolute fortune for this groundwater. They're going to be bequeathing an enormous environmental cleanup. Who the bill is unfathomable. But let's put it this way. The West Desert 
downwind is uh, Salt Lake City. And if you think the, that Utah is going to sit quietly and have more red alert air pollution days, um, it's not going to happen. The reason Inyo County and Owens Lake was allowed to blow bad for so many years was that it was okay, it was shutting down China Lake Naval Station and closing a few national parks, but it wasn't hitting any major population center. I think that um, this pipeline is going to be an absolute disaster. But bringing it around, may I? Yeah, please. Um, what was really interesting, everybody talks about the kind of touchy-feely um, and, and I think very important aspects of har even in dry places um, managing your local water supply well. And there's an important element to that that isn't necessarily will you be self-sufficient, but maintaining a water ethic, l uh, having your local population like know where water comes from, like there is a river. Um, and there's been, a, we do actually get a fair amount of water from our local watershed. We're surrounded by these big mountains. The rain clouds come in, it rains on the mountains, and it flows down very swiftly. And a few good dams, not many, catch it. And I would say, you know, the average capacity of these dams, the bigger ones, probably 20,000 acre feet, something like that. So, and we can't hold more because they're quite shaky mountains on an earthquake fault. But that water is, um, you know, a lot of it's lost because of sedimentation of the dams. It hits this paved valley, it hits our flood control system, and it just goes out to the ocean carrying a lot of pollutants. And the reason it's important to capture it isn't just to keep pollutants out of the bay, and it isn't just to augment our water supply, but it's to prevent seawater intrusion. So you, you don't have, you know, the ocean right there coming in to replace it and making all of your ground very saline. And I think you'll find your street trees won't like it much. <laughs> um, we had a bill put before LA County voters recently. It was a clean water, clean beaches measure. And it failed um, because property owners declined to pay $50 per parcel roughly a year towards a stormwater tax where you know, the, the city could be in retrofitting parks and parking lots and schools to capture stormwater. And I looked at, um, you know, they would have made, they estimated two to three hundred million a year. And then I looked at the costs of some retrofits that are highly, you know, I and other sort of green type journalists have loved. There's one called Elmer Avenue in Sun Valley. That cost a million, it was tree people and a few other people who did it all the county agencies. It costs one million. Okay, well, let's look at how many, how, there's six and a half thousand miles of street, excluding freeways in LA. And I calculated across 85 cities, it would take um, more than the moonshot to, <laughs> much more than the moonshot in, in updated dollars to retrofit LA, and it would take 691 years if we just used the clean water, clean beaches measure money to do it. Right. And so what we're seeing is we need, no street work should be done without curb cuts being done. Mm. No tree planting should be done. I wish Gretchen were here to, um, oh hey, <laughs> uh, Gretchen, I wanted to ask you, we have to rewrite our street tree list, right? 
Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. right. Well, cities like Chicago have completely rewritten their street tree list, and this is the kind of thing that I think, uh, um, you know, the, our mayor and our government, our supervisors should be calling on people like Gretchen to say, what should be the new street tree list? What's the new water budget? Yeah. How can we keep... And all of these departments are going to have to start working together in a local way, just as you talk about. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. So, no, no, I just... Uh, to, 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 uh, this is about cost and value, but I, I want to, to, to the question of price and get Steve back into the conversation. Um, you know, isn't a big way to, to get people's attention uh, markets, uh, making people feel um, uh, the real price? I mean, I, I live in South Pasadena. I have my, brought my water bill to show you here. <laughs> and, you know, we went to a two-tiered system, and look, they got me for two months, my water consumption, $216.24. That gets my attention. Yeah. 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 Um, now it's been up 170% in five years. It's a long story. We've neglected <laughs> our, you know, our, our, our pipes and things for 60 years, and now we're paying for it. But it got everyone's attention. People are ripping out their lawns. And so, so you know, can markets, you know, sort of get us there? Or should we worry about markets? Do we get, you know, do, you know, we have a big market, water market, and certainly Goldman Sachs is, you know, selling, you know, collateralized debt obligations to its customers while betting against them, you know? I mean, um, um, well, I mean, first of all, absolutely, market forces are, are the, are once you, if we could come up with a variety of vehicles, benchmark prices, uh, something that gets people's attention, and something where you can introduce market forces into the system. It obviously is the best because it doesn't require governments necessarily to uh, to make uh, regulatory decisions that are always never as efficient. Um, but uh, how do you do that is the question. Because you know, if you, I could sort of sit there and, and you could sort of say what the theoretical price for water should be. I think we might. I think we might agree on that. I mean, it should it should it should include and, and reflect uh, not just the the cost of of uh, ob obtaining the water, of delivering the water of maintaining the infrastructure that does that, of treating the, the, uh, the effluent uh, so that it goes back into the ecosystem in the same, more or less the same condition and the same volume that the people took it out in so that, it, that, it's, uh, that the next guy down the, that now down the stream has the same fair use of it that, that you did, right? I mean, that, that would sort of give you a, a global concept of what the thing ought to, ought to look like. Um, obviously, the pollution shows, the polluting of water, the overdrafting of groundwater shows that we are underpricing uh, water. These are environmental costs that have not been reflected in the, in the, in the water price. Um, so, but how do you, but how do you get, but, but, and, we, and we have a whole series of layers of, of prior appropriation laws out here in the West uh, that frankly are quite antiquated. Uh, not, not, I'm sure the Westlands folks maybe don't quite agree with that, but, 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 but that really um, need to be modified so that the, some of these market prices could start to work. So what's happening where you see it, where, where you let the system go on its own? Well, market, market forces still come into play. I'll, I'll give you an example. I was talking to Colorado uh, uh, water manager, and, and she was saying if we don't do anything, uh, to really get a water plan, a state water plan that begins to address all these water issues. We will find that the um, farmers are, will, we will lose 60% of our farmers will disappear because they are getting the old price for water, which is 
fairly negligible, selling it at, at like $1,000 an acre foot sometimes to the people who really can pay for it, which is energy, which we haven't even discussed yet, which is with all this hydrofracking and, and the rest, which is quite, in my mind, a, a quite a good, a good development for the, uh, for the country. Solar. Uh, uh, solar, thermal solar uses a lot of water, right? Uh, you know, good, they're, they're good options, but that's going to be increasing the demand very heavily, okay? These guys can pay a lot. The, the value is very high. People drinking urban systems will pay a lot. The farmers, you know, are, will eventually just sort of disappear. Um, that's not a good solution, uh, both for, for food reasons, but also for countryside. You know, being denuded uh, is, not a, is, is not a very nice way to have your countryside either. So uh, the, 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 there's, there's multiple answers to this question, but there are water markets that have started to, to some water trading that has started to develop. The way Australia did it, of course, was... Uh, rather interesting. I mean, they did tear up the old water rights. They allocated a certain amount for environmental flows and then let the rest be traded, which is being done over cell phones and rest among the farmers in, the, in this Murray-Darling Basin, uh, for, uh, uh, for, for existing, for the, for the use of the water on an, ongo on an annual basis. They don't, people are not losing their, 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 uh, their underlying uh, long-term rights to the extent that they still have them. And, and that system actually went through a drought of, of uh, they lost 70% of the water in that, in that the ecosystem. And the value, the economic value that that system produced was, was equal to what it was producing before. Uh, they were growing different things. They weren't growing rice anymore. You know, uh, they were now growing uh, wine. Okay, you know, we can't all live off of wine. But, but nevertheless, there should be some rationalization taking place in the places where we grow the things that we grow. Um, I mean, you know, Imperial Valley is, is a, frankly a, a terrible example of, 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 of a use of water that, that should be allocating much more water, reallocated, I should say, to other places. And maybe the, some of the farming that they're doing there shouldn't be done there at all. Um, but, but that's... Uh, you know, a water trading uh, issue. Yeah. yeah, I want you to get in this, and also Jason, this question of how of 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 water markets, and also what is what is it like to try to transfer water rights? <laughs> you know, given you know nothing personal, Peter, but the American yeah. lawyers yeah. being how they are. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, before we go there, I mean, I, I mean I, one point I think Steve makes that should be highlighted though is that I mean there is a lot of talk about water markets as being a great solution, and I completely agree with it. Um, the, but very frequently what you hear stated as sort of the justification for markets is, you know, um, Jason's guys don't pay enough for water, we would pay more, therefore the water should naturally flow to the guy who can pay the most for it. Um, and that's, um, I think that very much in some ways oversimplifies the nature of the problem. Markets can work very, very well, but you have to recognize, and, and Steve alluded to this, we have markets today, but um, at the end of the day, a market is nothing but a set of rules. Um, and the rules that we have today have created the outcomes that we have today. Simply having more transferability doesn't necessarily solve the problem in a way um, that makes it better. Um, and you ultimately really need strong governance um, and this was sort of talked about in the last panel, as a way to sort of shape what the outcome that you really want to see. Market tool is an incredibly powerful way of reallocating resource. It can be a great way of sharing risk. But simply just having an open exchange is not necessarily going to allow you to solve um, big, complicated water problems. And a part of that is just that the markets themselves are not necessarily going to incorporate 
the kind of risk management that you need to, to deal with. I, you know, I was struck by a comment on the last panel where the politician is asking, uh, well, once the voters get concerned, will we have enough time to solve the problem? And, and the answer to that, I think, in many cases is no. Um, you will not have time because these are big, complicated pieces of infrastructure and it takes a long time to shift them. And so a market can be a very powerful tool for doing that, but you've got to set it up in a way that anticipates the management of risk and, and also protects the values you care about. Um, agriculture does get very cheap water, but on the other hand, agriculture is food security. A uh, comment so from Jason before we go to the audience. Some ag communities get very cheap water. Some uh, cities have very cheap water. Some cities have no meters. Uh, there's a whole different, I mean, it's, you, it's hard to generalize. I would say, though, when we think about our recent history, something to really celebrate is the, the development of the water market and something that, that 25 years ago in, in the ag community of California, people were scared to death of the cities coming and taking our water, right? There was a, it was a, it was a, a visceral fear. And, and, and that water war notion would apply in that, in, the, in, in that fear setting. Today, right, it's just rules. It's, and the rules are, are coming clearer, and, um, um, and it's, it's not something to be feared. Ag, is, there's a great thing about ag. You can turn it off. Like we turn off 150,000 acres of, of farmland in order to move water to permanent crops. Uh, it's, it, 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 it can work. The transaction costs are ex unacceptably high. The, the need to, you know, we start this transfer market like from scratch every year. We don't have a permanent institution. We need that in California so we can get the transaction costs down. Uh, and ag, uh, you know, the way it traditionally works is ag districts that sell their water, we're a, we're a buyer, we're not a seller. We're, we're, we compete with MET for, for water acquisitions in, in Northern California. Um, <clears throat> those districts, uh, they do have they may have a, a cheap water, they have a water rights or something, but they have systems that have, are really conducive to investment for increased efficiency. They don't have the revenue stream, they don't have the economic base where they can go out and line all their canals. But if they can sell some water, it's not like they're profiteering, they're reinvesting in their own community. Joe Peters. Why, with the Owens uh, Lake, why can't they use the Pacific water to hold the dust down? Because the water would have to run quite considerably uphill from the Pacific. It would have to be pumped up. And uh, that would be a, a massive, massive investment. It would be more expensive than um, LA's other two options for covering for dust suppression, which were um, gravel, which they decided initially was too expensive, or managed vegetation, which requires some water, but not very much. Um, so basically, it's got the same problems as desal with a couple hundred miles and quite a lift. So you'd be taking it up into the foothills of the you know, Sierra across the Mojave to get it to use for dust suppression. So, you know, w our water's in the wrong place, I guess is the answer. Um, they do want to use brinish or brackish um, groundwater but there's lots of local opposition to this because um, it would suppress the dust just fine, but it could cause drawdown and spring failure and springs and seeps around and yet more environmental degradation. 
Ken Murray. Um, an intertwined uh, two questions. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, Los Angeles becoming uh, eventually water independent from these uh, distant sources, which require which will require a lot of infrastructure work in decades. But um, the implications of this, um, I think, are, are really quite remarkable. And in one case, I would ask if the water that we're drawing down from Sacramento were no longer needed for Los Angeles and became available to the Central Valley uh, farmers. Uh, I'm interested in how much of an impact that would have. And because it takes 10% of all the power produced in the state to pump it over the mountains to Los Angeles, making that power available to the rest of the state. Maybe this would be more for you, Joe. The, the implications of that power becoming available and no longer needing to be used, what effect that would have on, on power infrastructure. I'm glad that's not, I don't need, want that question. <laughs> <laughs> that's hard. <laughs> I'll just take a, a little piece of it. Uh, um, I, I, I'm not that much of a dreamer, I guess, because I just cannot imagine water independence for Los Angeles. I just, it's, th th there's, there's too much here, and there's too little locally. And uh, if you wanted to build desal plants every five miles or so along the coast, Maybe you could do it, but um, I just, there, you know, LA has a fantastic story. In fact, we like to jam the Bay Area with it all the time. You conserve more water than they use. And uh, you've got a great history of, of uh, your population growing, but your water demand not growing. What Met is doing, like what we're doing relative to the Bay Delta, is trying to make that, stabilize that water supply and make it reliable and something you can invest on. You can't, you've got to have something to recycle. Uh, so I guess that's my, and, and would the water come to us? No, I, I'm sure while we have an allocation of about, we have a contract for about a million acre feet uh, with the, the federal government, uh, we, and we have 500,000 acres of irrigable land, we, that's not enough to fully farm what we have. So we cut back on land and, 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 and given the, the advocacy that we see, my guess is that if Metropolitan didn't need its Northern California water, the push would be on to send it to the ocean in the name of helping fish, uh, just like they've taken our water and restricted pumping in the name of helping fish. It hasn't worked so far, nor not the reallocation of two million acre feet of water over 20 years, per year over 20 years, or the investment of two and a half billion dollars in it, habitat projects, those things have not resulted in a healthy fishery. So I question that we have a big, we probably our biggest debate is water for fish. And uh, I think it's, 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 we've got a demonstrated history of that it's not a beneficial use of the magnitude that, uh, that the water has been reallocated. Can, can I just say something about that? Yeah, yeah, Because yeah, to, to me, it doesn't strike me that the, the, the fish are, to me, I, 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 maybe I'm, I'm outsider here in California, but the fish are, are construction of a fish and wildlife uh, uh, tool that is, by, is also a very artificial tool and is really there to, to be a gauge. It should be a gauge for whether the ecosystem itself is being is is is, is functional. It's, it's it's really the canary in the ca in the in the ca in the cave. That's how the, it should be used. It's not the way it often is used because of the def deformation of the way that that 
framework has developed, just like the original allocation for the prior appropriations uh, developed. This is an, art, an artificial, so we're, we're moving from an artificial construct for an artificial construct on this side and trying to come up with a rational solution. And so the use of the fish is, is somewhat symbolic. It well, should be Well, Northern California fisheries might take issue they, with that. They might. They actually, sure, you sure. Know, but, but let's, I mean, let's look at this fish. way. I mean, I, one thing, I'm working on the Mississippi, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this. I, I, I think we, we're looking at water now. We're talking about water. And water is not, and I look at a river. Right, let's take a river or take any ecosystem. A, ri a river is, is not just water, you know? It's, it's sediment. It's, it's, it's interaction with a floodplain, and it's carrying sort of the DNA of an ecosystem. When we're talking about integrated management, as we were talking about before, which is sort of the new paradigm that, that really is out there, it's, it's just ready to happen. I mean, you've got to begin to conceive, uh, reconceive the way that we think even about what water is. It's not just water by itself. And, and that, I think, is where we get the politics get all heated over these question of these fish. And I agree, the, the fish become absurd. The Delta smelt becomes an absurdity when you look at it in isolation that way. But if you look at it as a, as a piece of a larger and representing something else, then it isn't. Steve, hold on, Joe, just a second, Steve. I saw puzzled looks on that. What is, what is the two-sentence definition of integrated management? For Int integrated water management. Uh, well, it was alluded to before in the panel. I mean, you, you've got to start to look at these ecosystems as, uh, as, a, as a river, take a, take a river, for example, as a total, as a, as a total watershed. That is, the, where the sources are of the, of the water, the sediment, the, the, flow, the interaction with the floodplain, the human uses as you take it out, the interaction between the snow melt, the, the, the surface flow, the groundwater flows. Uh, and, and these things, uh, we have tools. I mean, we have GIS tools. We have all kinds of now remote sensing tools. I mean, we have science is really, really pretty present to be able to, to use this. It's looking so, at the world as a series of river basins, basically. Well, and, yeah. and, and right. Oh. Uh, well, we're even more integrated than that. But, well, yeah. to put it in local perspective, LADWP and other companies supply the fresh water. The Bureau of Sanitation takes it once we sully it. Uh, flood control takes anything we put into the storm drain system. The sediment remains locked up in dams and they literally truck it up into the Angeles National Forest and dump it in pristine woodlands. It, so you have a, a real disparity of organization. What he's saying is that we need government to reflect so that manage the whole river in a holistic way, and it's a brilliant point. We, we need, we, and, and energy is, is right. another one. I mean, our energy infrastructure is very disconnected from our water infrastructure. We're seeing, though, the nexus between energy and water is, you know, is, is really, uh, is, is very close. We can go into that if Jason, anybody's interested. Jason, I cut you off. I, I just wanted to make clear that we absolutely recognize that uh, a healthy ecosystem is vital to our own personal best interest. Sure. That if we have a healthy ecosystem, we're not going to have the kind of restrictions that limit our ability to, to grow food. But, I, but I, we also can't lose sight of the fact that in the Delta, and I'll be parochial about the Delta, but it's, it's an entirely man-made environment. It's entirely manipulated. Uh, and, and what makes recovering a Delta smelt population, which we don't even know how many there are, because there's no population estimate, just an index, is uh, one of the many challenges is that we have 95% uh, of the aquatic biota is introduced. And we have predator fish. Uh, striped bass came from in barrels from the Chesapeake. And they're, all, the, all the, the bass uh, predators are doing great. So it's not an ecological meltdown. It is for the, the native fish that we care about. You know, 90 plus percent in some studies of the downstream migrating salmon are, are, predated, are eaten by predators or disappear. Uh, so it, it's a very, very tough environment to work in. 
Uh, and believe me, we are more than frustrated in the kind of the approach of the ESA regulators, which is there's one knob here. It's we're going to have, we're gonna, we're gonna, Act, yeah, the Endangered yeah. Species Act regulators. We're going to control the export pumps, and we think that's going to do a job. It's not doing a job. There's a bunch of other uh, toxics and, and fishing and, and uh, uh, lack of habitat and other factors that we've got to get to. That's what the Bay Delta Conservation Plan is all about. It's this bigger, comprehensive approach. Right. I mean, saltwater invasion is a kind of a kind of a big would be a big problem, uh, or the, an earthquake in the in the zone well, uh, that you've got to uh, you know <laughs> you know you, these these are issues that affect the we ecosystem. Have time. My name's Alec Mackey. We were talking about water rates earlier, and one of the things I find interesting is that if I walk into a gas station and buy a bottle of water, and I compare that to what I pay out of the tab, uh, from my industry experience, I know it's about a thousand percent of the cost that we pay for that bottle of water whereas we only pay about 90 to 95 percent, not even the full cost of our tap water are, are, is what we're paying. Stephen, how did we find ourselves in this situation, and how do we get out of it? We should trust our tap water a little more, uh, but I, I don't know how do we get ourselves out of it. Uh, how do but we this is it? a great business to be in. I mean, this is a, they, oh, they, a, they, put this, they bottle this in Wichita or Queens. Queens? It's a 1,700 percent markup. I mean, why are we doing anything else but selling this? <laughs> well, maybe maybe some of our I don't know maybe some of our water districts ought to start bottling water as well and start selling it and paying for, pay fund of, paying for the rates. There we go. Get them out. Little competition with uh, Coca Cola and Pepsi Cola. Any uh, anything else on that on to that question? I mean, I think you. I mean, w one thing that needs to happen is you need to. And I mean, I think it's in, in terms of thinking about how do you design a market that would work, is you need to build in the the cost of the things you're actually trying to achieve into the market, whether uh, that's you know, protection of environment, uh, whether that's uh, right. system reliability and infrastructure upgrades. Water fountains. Um, we need water fountains. And, and, you know, every public space should have water fountains. And we should, you know, it should, walking around like you're some five-year-old who still needs a baby cup. <laughs> I mean, how did that happen? Um, we need water fountains. Why, why are they so important? I'm not sure everyone understands Water fountains? Yeah. So when you're thirsty, you can go to a public water fountain and you're not driven into a store to buy, you know, to pay. F I, I mean, at a cinema... It's not, it's not oxygenated with extra vitamins. Right. Oh, that's well, true. Well, the truth, yeah, is I mean. that the truth is, if we, we used to have them. I mean, when we were kids, we, we had them, right? They were and, everywhere. And, 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 you know, you, if, you had, if you really wanted to have that water bottle, you could just carry it and, and yeah. fill it up, right? But at, they, at were, the water they were everywhere. Water fountains were everywhere and they become scarce. And I think that we should have... Water fountains should be... Uh, required everywhere and uh, you know and well, this idea that you need these things I, I just ugh. I think the water yeah. fountain foundation well, would be a, actually a, a <laughs> yeah. catchy idea yeah. and, and not too expensive to put in but and, one, one, one and they could be public art too they could be just <laughs> who had the grooviest yeah, that's an idea for the yeah. ideas exchange Peter no, I mean <laughs> one point though I think that I mean, just coming off of this question is that I mean uh, there has been a lot of there's a lot of conversation today, and I think there's always a lot of conversation about how conservation. You know, if, if we only paid more, we would use less. That would solve our problem. And um, I think it's important to recognize that that also sort of oversimplifies the issue that we really face. Um, simply using less or charging ourselves more doesn't really get us there. Um, it's it's really about it could repair a lot of bursting mains. You're from Arizona. You don't try to go through the, you know, Laurel Canyon after a LADWP burst. <laughs> we need to 
do some yeah no we 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 need to but, but I think the uh, I mean very frequently uh, the conversation in the West around water is if we only use less, then we would be able to continue growing forever uh, then we would be able to have our cake and eat it too That's i think true. I think it's it's important to recognize that part of the question about why do we pay so so little for what we pay in the tap when we're apparently willing to pay a whole bunch more out of the bottle and presumably we'd be willing to pay even more if we were in the middle of the desert with uh, for a bottle of water is the question of what is it we're going to use why are we using less or what are we going to conserve for um, if it's simply to conserve so that we can continue to try and grow forever on a limited supply um, if we're not addressing questions around vulnerability um, and the fact that we're facing climate change, then I don't know what we're doing. Could, could, I, I, could, I, could I make well, the final well, comment? I, I just want to point out, they just from a, <laughs> from a big perspective, I mean, we've got to understand the United States is a water-wealthy country. Uh, we have 8% of the world's uh, fresh water and only 4% of its population. So when you look out, when you're considering our difficulties here, and where this is an arid region, it's not the water wealthiest region of the United States, but nevertheless, this pales in comparison to what you're seeing in many parts of the world. Uh, so that's one issue. Uh, 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 I, I, but we may all have to move to Detroit. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and a lot of industries yeah. will move to where there are water, uh, you know, mm. water resources out mm. there. Um, so I, I wanted to make that point. I also wanted to make a last point that there have been very major improvements in one regard. If you look back at the, uh, the United States and, the industri and this is in the industrialized world, that from, from the 1900 to 1975 in the United States, we used water at a rate that was three times faster than our population growth. Since then, actually our per capita use of water has declined by about 30%. We have, we've actually are now drawing less water per person than we were back in 1975. And the reason for that is goes back to sometimes it's some of its cost and, and price and, and therefore efficiencies that we've now put in. Some of it is also regulation that we put in to put an environmental cost on some things. For example, the power plants that were taking all the water out of the rivers and we're, um, then we're just dump, dumping them back uh, heated. The regulations went into to effect and, they, and then that spurred a whole lot of innovation. So there are a lot of hopeful things, and there's an awful lot we can do. So yes or no, if we get this right, become even more, ramp up our water productivity, Americans, uh, we can I, totally crush the Chinese, uh, make it another well, American I, century. You know, you know something, the Chinese have one-fifth the amount of water we do per, per person. The north-south, the, the amount of, their, their, their problems in the northern part of China, which is their richest resource part in agriculture and coal, is, 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 is ten times worse than you got here in Southern California. So I'm taking that as a yes. So let's leave it there. Please thank the panel. Um, and uh, 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 a final instruction to you from Port Richards Almanac. Take counsel in wine, but resolve afterwards in water. So the <laughs> resolve is back that way.